In this podcast, Howard Yu, author of book Leap, talks about how businesses could stay relevant in this age of disruption. So stay tuned. So welcome everyone to Jobs of Future podcast. Today we have with us Howard Yu. Uh, and uh, I think one of the purpose of this podcast is to talk to some of the creative minds who are who are actually defining and, and helping us understand the future of jobs. And Howard is a very sort of uh, appropriate guy. And uh, uh, to, to quote a, few, uh, uh, a small bio about him. So Howard is a Lego professor of management um, and innovation in the prestigious IMD Business School in Switzerland, as well as director of its signature program, uh, the three-week advanced management program and executive education course. In 2015, you was selected by Poets and Quants as one of the world's top 40 business professors under 40. And in twenty um, in twenty eighteen, he appeared on the Thinkers Fifty radar list of thirty management thinkers most likely to shape the future of how organizations are managed and led. He has delivered customized training program uh, for leading organizations, including Mars, Maersk, uh, Daimler, and Electrolux. His article up, uh, have appeared in Forbes, Fortune, Harvard Business Review, The Financial Times, and New York Times. Uh, you received his doctoral degree from Harvard Business School. Uh, prior to his beginning his doctorate, he worked in the banking industry in Hong Kong. With that, uh, you welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure. Beautiful. So uh, why don't you walk us through your journey? Like what brought you to here? Yeah, um, you know, after my doctoral degree at uh, Harvard Business School, I, I launched my job at IMD in Switzerland about eight years ago. And I remember when I was still at Harvard, I kind of brought with myself a little puzzle. And that is, if I look across the world, across different industries, at some point, these leading companies have to reinvent themselves. Mm. Sometimes it's for survival. Sometimes it's to unleash next growth, or build the next growth engine. So typically what happened we saw organization is they invest in new capability. They do R&D. They formulate a new strategy. They push a product in the marketplace. But quite often what we see is companies still fumble in the marketplace, not because of the lack of technologies, but somehow the organization couldn't realign themselves and the management are not willing to change the role that they play. I was thinking about the example that I was doing quite a bit of research back then in Boston, and that was Polaroid. So I spent mm -hmm. six months crawling through the corporate archive in the basement of the library in Boston, dark, windowless in wintertime, mm -hmm. almost suicidal. <laughs> what I found out kind of surprises me, and it turns out back in 1987, the company actually demonstrated its digital camera on stage in an annual mm -hmm. shareholders meeting. 87. And so it's a cautionary reminder for me that even when the company have cracked the technologies, even when the company know what is coming, they pick that on the right direction. But if the organization couldn't work together across silo and across different parts of, of the company, it's not sufficient. So what really bogged down Polaroid is the inability for managers across functions to work together so that eventually consumer or customer can actually understand what they are trying to do. Um, so that becomes a, a, a thrust for me. When I come to Switzerland, I continue to thinking about, you know, technological change is important. 
but fundamentally for a company to survive and thrive over the long run, there must be more than that. So that has always been my uh, research and teaching interest. Interesting. And and what do you do today? Like, what's what's your role uh, at I at uh, IMD, uh, and what do you do nowadays? Yeah. So at IMD, I'm mostly specialized in executive education. So I teach different programs. Some of them are very customized uh, training program for specific company. Some of them are open program, like the advanced management program AMP you mentioned earlier. But essentially, we try to get managers to bring in their own challenge, could be personal, that they mm. need to reinvent themselves, could be at a team level. The team, the role of the team change rapidly, require new team dynamic. Or as an organization, the way you architect a complex organization needs to get changed, structure, KPI, key performance indicator, etc. So we try to get these executives coming in, bringing their own challenge, and work it through a very intense type of environment. And they could rapid prototype some of these strategies so that they leave the school with a plan, with a roadmap, so that they change as a team or as a change individual. So at IMD, I mostly teach on executive education, and it takes many, many different forms, all the way to expedition. I was in India not too long ago. I was in China as well. Taking a group of European managers, as well as a few American, just to really understand different parts of the world despite we are all talking about connectivity, it actually looks quite different. Hmm. The business model everywhere actually can be uniquely different. Interesting. Um, so before I, I, def, I, I want to talk about your book. I think it's, it's fascinating. So before we jump into that, I want to, I want to get your perspective on um, what's your thoughts on um, the future of work, worker and workplace. Like you have done a lot of research around organizational behavior and how they are, they're shaping up their competencies. What's your what from your vantage point? What do you see um, uh, your perspective on the future of this work landscape? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, when I'm talking to senior executive, one of the key concerns or area that they begin to invest in a very big way is this uh, knowledge automation. Automation has been around with us for a long, long time. And in the past, it's all about manufacturing. And still today, there are many, many exciting robotic technologies coming out. But more and more, what we see is at the workplace, even um, the traditional white-collar job or knowledge-intensive work are beginning to get automated. Uh, from cancer diagnosis to radiocardiogram, all the way to financial advisory, these jobs tend to be associated with uniquely human impacts. Mm. Things that require a long period of time training, experience, human intuition. We begin to see those specific type of deep expertise can be transferred into a machine algorithm that mm. can undergo the industry uh, terminology would be machine learning, reinforcement learning, that the algorithm continue to improve by itself. And it's particularly this type of uh, automation that senior executive I see from big company to startup, they pay a lot of attention um, and it has huge implications uh, from talent management to recruitment policy to the way we organize our workplace will have a huge implication five years down the road, I think. 
And so this is where, um, in terms of the job nature, is mostly likely to go shift uh, and, and, and a big concern of debates as well. Interesting, interesting. And I think, um, so now I want to understand your perspective on the book, uh, Leap. So what what brought you to write a book uh, on this perspective uh, called Leap? Yeah, um, you know, this really bore out, again, based on my conversation as well as teaching. Um, because one of the big concerns, exactly beyond just, you know, the white collar job is getting automated and knowledge work is getting automated. The other part of the equation is most companies find it very increasingly difficult to differentiate their product in the marketplace, meaning um, there are competition coming up with similar product. The copycats competition are popping up. The sales team within the organization find it harder and harder to differentiate a product offering to command a premium price. And it's this pressure that executives find themselves getting trapped in almost a rat race. Some people would call it product commoditization. Mm. I would say essentially the innovation engine is running out of steam. So the book is really about, although we have seen a lot of industry go down this pathway, for example, solar panel, wind turbine, mobile phone, uh, personal computer, all of these industry, including automotive, all of these industry were pioneered by Western company. Now today, the manufacturing cluster and even the innovation cluster oftentimes shift to Asia. So in this type of competition, how do pioneering company can thrive over the long run, not just for decades, but for centuries, is the core of the quest of this book. And so it, the book title is really around how to thrive in a world when everything can be copied. Interesting, interesting. And I think, I, and, and what I like fascinating about the book, I think, um, was that, um, um, so whenever whenever I talk to any business, right? So I said, hey, find a playbook. That is because games could change, but playbook typically are the same. And I think uh, what I liked about your book is you have beautifully, uh, connected the past stories and past sort of all the sort of whether you call it war scenarios uh, and war room scenarios in 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 current times so, so so readers can connect the dots together i think i do appreciate you sort of uh, helping and navigating that and i think you raised a very interesting point around as things move to asia and sort of as we started becoming um we call it maybe race to the bottom sort of maintaining your bottom line and sort of from the, their perspective uh, getting things cheaper and faster. Do you think really um, competitive edge really makes any sense when when like when ops runs over, when ops takes over in many of the businesses? What's your take on that? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, so so I like the way you characterize competition as almost a race to the bottom, right? <laughs> uh, for example, it's the textile industry. It started from Great Britain, the turn mm. of the century, industrial revolution, then to US. At one point, US is the largest textile manufacturing cluster in the world. Mm. And then moving, of course, to Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Singapore, uh, Japan, and South Korea. And then now it's China, India, and Bangladesh. 
So we oftentimes see industry as, as it becoming more and more mature, uh, the cluster of innovation move out from the original area. So I live, I was born and raised in Hong Kong. And obviously one of the big themes is we see our manufacturing cluster basically collapse uh, and implode and move to China. This is the kind of city that I live in. When I moved to Switzerland, I had a personal observation that kind of puzzled me. Because if you go to Switzerland on the east side of the country, there's the city called Basel. In Basel, there is a big cluster of pharmaceutical industry. Now, all these big pharmaceutical companies, such as Novartis or Roche, they have been settling around River Rhine for centuries. In fact, they have been there for 250 years. And yet, the innovation cluster of pharmaceutical company continues to stay in a little city called Basel. Its standard of living is among the highest in Western Europe, unlike Detroit, the rust belt of automotive in the United States. So I get very interested in understanding what's going on within this mm. pharmaceutical cluster that allows this age-old century old company to continue to stay on top of competition, despite they could have been displaced by copycat elsewhere. Mm. So what I found out eventually is a set of principles, how pioneering company can stay on top of competition. Um, so let me just spend a few minutes just to mm. give you a quick review about the history of pharmaceutical. Now, it turns out this pharmaceutical firm in Switzerland, they, tend, they used to be chemical dye company. They make chemical dye for mm. textile industry. Now, later on, some of these chemists actually discover, hey, my dye actually have medicinal benefit. Mm. So the first blockbuster of the world is called antipyrin. It's fever-reducing drugs. And so they were exporting like no tomorrow to the United States. In fact, back then, uh, there was an article in 1905 in New York Times. I think the only worry is whether the Swiss and the German can supply the North American demand. Now, so back then, the innovation hotbed is all about organic chemistry. Mm. You might remember Alexander Fleming back in high school. We read about he discovered penicillin, the antibiotics. Mm. It's all about understanding micro microbiology. So after the Second World War. All these pharmaceutical companies begins to study microbes. They send in field worker to go down to mine shaft. They send in balloon to collect air sample. They even ask employees to open the fridge to look at mold, interesting mold, mm. because antibiotics is all about the mold juice mm. created by interesting fungus. So the study begins to move from organic chemistry into microbiology. Now today, if you look at pharmaceutical companies, it's all about genomics, it's genetics, it's uh, bioengineering. So what we see is the fundamental discipline of pharmaceutical company as an industry. It moved from organic chemistry to microbiologies and then to genomics. Now compare and contrast to textile, automotive, wind turbine, solar panel, the fundamental knowledge discipline actually stays stagnant. Mm. So the reason that these basal little company can fan off copycat competition is not by doing the same thing better but they fundamentally change from one knowledge discipline to the next. This is why I call the book Leap. You have to leap mm. in order to thrive in a world when everything can be copied. Interesting. I think you're raising an interesting point. So you talk about knowledge, right? So you uh, so in, in the knowledge construct, how can I leap knowledge? Like what, what what's your take on that? Like Because many of the businesses, knowledge is the core fundamental fabric of my, my existence, right? So... Uh, what are some of your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, so there are two types of situation a company will face. Now, arguably for pharmaceutical companies, it's pretty straightforward because when they leave from organic chemistry to microbiology mm. to genomics, it's dictated by the scientific community. The university is moving on, so you have to stay abreast. Um, but there are situations where your industry kind of making mundane product. So the idea is, am I doomed? Now, the good news is you're not. Um, mm. So the other part of the study, I was looking at product category that's seemingly mundane and common as laundry detergent, disposable diaper. So it turns out Procter & Gamble has been around for 150 years, and yet they still continue to be a global leader in the chosen category that they were in. So again, because I'm trained as a business historian in my doctoral research, mm. I go back to looking at the trajectory of Procter & Gamble. Now, it turns out P&G, they were based in Cincinnati, and they were the first one who mastered mass production. That was years ahead of Henry Ford. Back then, the only mass production is the meatpacking industry. So you have a body of a hog or a pig come down. A worker would do just one kind of cutting. Then the animal moved to the next station. It's division of labor. Now, in Cincinnati, Ohio, that's the big cluster of meatpacking. That gives Mr. Proctor and Mr. Gamble the blueprint of how to manufacture soap and candle on large scale. So essentially, the understanding or the major knowledge discipline is mechanical engineering. They install all this automation machinery and so on, building larger and larger scale of factory. Then the second generation were confronted with a huge issue because they were making white soap. Everybody is making white soap. They could not differentiate their product, product commoditization, we said. Now, around that time, uh, color printing becomes very, very much in fashion. For the first time, P&G decided to do a lot of advertisement on color print. Then the radio came along. They were the first one who pioneered soap opera, putting mm. radio entertainment on show to entertain homemakers during the daytime. Now, all of these activities at P&G, in fact, they could have outsourced to advertising agents. And mm. there are advertising agencies who are happily to do that. But PNG decided we have to build a know-how internally around consumer psychology. So these days you actually hear about executive debating whether large data analytics or AI should be something we just buy from outside and outsource mm. to someone else, or we should build up that internal capability. That's the same dilemma inside PNG. They choose to build it in-house. Then the third wave is after the Second World War, then some of these engineers at PNG was trying to solve a technical issue. They discovered mm. that natural soap would form scrum when washed in hot water. They want to come up with a synthetic detergent based on organic understanding, organic chemistry understanding. So that was when PNG launched Tide, the first synthetic detergent in the world. Now, in the wake of the launch of Tide, essentially the technical staff member tripled in terms of number of uh, technical uh, engineers. Now, if you're looking at the uh, history of Procter & Gamble, they essentially have mastered three fundamental disciplines over time, starting off from mechanical engineering, building factory and large-scale manufacturing, to consumer psychology, running advertisement from color print to radio show to TV. And then most lately would be uh, synthetic detergent rooted in organic chemistry. Now, if PNG only stay on one single discipline, for example, mechanical engineering, 
at best, they would be just low-cost competition, banding off copycat desperately. But because of this totality of three knowledge disciplines, give them an edge to thrive over the long run, over the last 150 years. Now, it doesn't mean that they don't need to change going forward. Of course they do. And the next wave, of course, is social media marketing, large data analytics, design thinking. These are the future new disciplines that PNG, some of them has already mastered, but they're in progress. But what we see is the history is for company to thrive, whether you are drug makers in the high-tech world, or you're making soap and laundry detergent to make people look nice, the principle is essentially identical. Interesting. Um, so I think one thing um, I was thinking about when, when you're talking about PNG and sort of it's it's uh, how it expanded its product line. And I think that's that I find interesting in your book. So, so like as a business, we are tuned or, or trained to sort of exploit uh, our products to its max capability. And and I think you you were talking about sort of creating or at least creating product that cannibalizes other products. What is what is that mindset like? Why why would you say that? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, I'm very glad you bring this up because, uh, you know, any product or company, they kind of move through a life cycle. So it's almost like starting from the growth phase, like a startup, then accelerated growth, then sort of peak, and then product mature, company mature, and then eventually decline. So the key question is, when is the best time for change, right? Of course, ideally, you want to change when time is on your side, but then mm-hmm. the company doesn't have the urgency. People mm-hmm. don't see the there's lots of resistance. When you wait later on, then the option space gets reduced. You don't have a lot of options. Resources is tight. It's not ideal. So this is the dilemma that any forward-looking manager needs to uh, uh, wrestle with. But what we see is from Novartis as a drug maker mm-hmm. all the way to Procter & Gamble, one key element that jumped out is this fear, is this um, willingness to embrace self-cannibalization. Meaning ahead of time, they were willing to launch something on a financial uh, analysis. Looks less margin, mm. more uncertainty, but they still go ahead. Let me give you a very concrete example. Um, when Novartis is about to launch a targeted drug that, solve, uh, that treat cancer, a rare form of cancer, a rare form of leukemia called CML. They essentially use the entire new way of being, uh, discovering drugs. So, so it's really based on genomics and genetics analysis. And um, at that moment, for the financial projection, uh, getting FDA approval is always very expensive. Mm. To, stop, to come up with drugs to solve a rare form of cancer, the market revenue projection is probably quite low. Mm-hmm. And with all this uncertainty, a lot of managers thought we should spend our money on disease class that are much more prevalent, like breast cancer, prostate cancer, rather than this CML leukemia, which is tiny. But then the CEO, Daniel Venzella, based on review of evidence, that becomes very clear that the way these new drugs, called Cleavec eventually, when they launch, it doesn't just represent incremental revenue, which has a lower margin perhaps, but also represent a complete new ways of how drugs should be discovered. And so he basically had a conversation with the board 
together with direct report. Basically, the message is money doesn't matter. We have to mm. go ahead. Same thing at PNG. Before they are about to launch detergent tie, they have a great brand called Ivory, which you know, float. And mm. so in, within PNG, there was this compulsive fear that the new synthetic detergent is going to destroy their crown jewel. Mm. And so the uh, chairman of the board became a strong supporter of the synthetic detergent research. He basically said, if anybody is going to destroy PNG core business, it better be PNG ourselves. So it's, it's similar as Steve Jobs, right? Steve Jobs yeah. said, you don't cannibalize yourself, mm. someone else would. But it's mm. not just Steve Jobs said that. In fact, throughout history, forward-looking leader, they all behave in a very similar manner. And for a good reason. You have to embrace self-cannibalization in order to lead into a new knowledge discipline. Because in the face of unknown, all the conventional financial and analytical framework and tool doesn't help. And if I judge a new business using conventional KPI, the new business always loses. Interesting. And I think one more thing that I was thinking about is, so in, 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 in this methodology of leap, right? Is there, is there too much leap or too less leap? Like, is there any sort of indicator that, that would suggest, hey, I'm innovating enough or, or I'm over-innovating than I should? What are, what are your thoughts right. on that? Right. So, so there are two parts. Um, one is, what are the, some of the warning signs that I begin to really get onto our organization to be ready? So the mm. warning sign or the limits test oftentimes is quite obvious. Can I touch upon a little bit earlier? For example, your customer begins not to understand your value proposition anymore. They feel like, well, your product is good, but it's way more expensive than my alternative. Hmm. Or the salespeople begins to tell us, well, yeah, it's great that we put on all these features and services, but our customer don't really get it. They don't care. And, and we had a hard time in convincing them to use our premium product. If anything, the good enough product serves just as well. So these are the typical warning signs that we need to really think differently about how your product and services need to be delivered based on a new knowledge discipline. So that's warning sign. Now, when would it be doing too much? Mm. I think in, in the face of uncertainty, we do need to carry out a lot of experimentation, meaning the last thing you want is to have senior leader of the firm discussing whether we should go ahead with this project without enough evidence. Because again, the example of Novartis to PNG and many, many examples I have come across before the company or the senior management team pull the trigger and make the big bet full mm. steam ahead, there are enough evidence based on experiment, based on market demand that is real. Um, so, so, but then it still requires a senior executive to focus on three or four key initiatives to pour in the resources in so that you move away from an emergent strategy, try everything into a much more deliberate mode. Because what you, don't, uh, what you cannot have is an experimentation have no end. You keep on experimenting and never commit the organization. So, so it's this two tension, right? We need to experiment a lot in order to reduce this dark space of ignorance. But once the evidence is clear, you do require a senior executive to change the resource allocation and really pull the trigger and full steam ahead. So, so, so companies who are not willing to commit tend to run the risk of 
doing too much without focus. Interesting. And and in your in your study or research, so what are some of the leaders like? What are some of the lessons learned uh, that you could share from businesses who were successfully able to sort of leverage their surrounding and and, and able to see the growth that they, that they probably are enjoying now, the benefits yeah. of. So what are yeah, some so, of the things you can share? Yeah, so this is a great question because this book ultimately is is a book not of, you know, just just bad example, but mm. we've seen company able to do that on an evolutionary basis. Mm. So I came across a company um, that is from Japan. Mm. Uh, the reason I bring this up because because this is historically is a classified post company, it's a yellow page company. It's called Recruit Holdings, like recruitment, recruit holdings. And they have been around for the last 65 years-ish. So they started off printing classified posts and yellow page. And I would have thought they should have gone out of business. There is mm. no way that a classified post company can prosper in the age of digital. But they did. Today they no longer make classified posts, obviously, but they transform themselves into a internet-based service provider for small, medium-sized company. So think about rolling up Yelp, OpenTable, Salesforce.com, and payment services all into one, serving Japanese, a small, medium-sized enterprise, such as restaurant, mom and pop store, beauty salon. That is the kind of business they're in. And um, you're looking at the P ratio, recruit holdings, is a PE ratio meaning profit, uh, the price of the stock uh, versus earning or revenue. They are at the same height as Google and Facebook. So this is a classic situation, uh, mm. uh, anomaly, that you have a very traditional, a legacy company who are able to slowly evolve. And today they even have an AI lab in Silicon Valley to understand how they can do that large data analytics. And what I saw in the corporate history it goes something like this. Um, they always are happy to experiment with, with new stuff. So when internet first emerged in Japan, they were the first one who gone digital, putting all the content online for free. Now, at first, then earning really plummeted because they have no idea how to make money. And back then, in early 2000, there weren't a lot of writing about platform strategy. Today, you can read a lot of stuff. Back then, there's not a lot of academic research. So over time, although they understand the golden rule of internet business, you need to grow a user base first, then you can think about how to monetize over that. So they build that first wave. And then over time, they discover, well, you know, for beauty salon or for a small time restaurant, putting advertisement on our digital platform is great, but that's not sufficient. There are so many pain points that a proprietor or boss who run a restaurant needs to face. For example, people calling us up to form a table, you need to do paper based, sometimes book. What if we provide a booking system for restaurant? Same thing for beauty salon, there's so much back end accounting and stuff like that. What if we provide that? And and for mom and pop store, what if we give something like Square, the payment system back that wasn't available in Japan? So over time they move into a vertical stack, meaning Whatever the problem or pain point a customer face, they have different solutions. This is how you generate that customer stickiness over time. And then later, once they have all this data accumulated through that platform, they begin to think about how can we leverage these data so that we can even 
tell our, our, our customer to have predictive maintenance, to recommend the kind of dishes you want to recommend for your customer. If you are a waiter, depending on supply and demand, all of these new services came alive because they have generated so much data based on their change. So what I see at Recruit is Leap is not as radical as we normally would associate. In mm. fact, it simply requires customer insight through in-depth conversation and know-how and deep observation through lots of experiment and, and, and to pursue that customer stickiness over time. But arguably, in the end, the management team were also very, very willing to embrace self-cannibalization, particularly on the first wave of digital. They give away content for free for one of the magazines. They have many, many magazines of different type of classified posts. They just pick one. We lose money on that one. That's okay. We won't collapse. Mm. Let's try things. Let's work it out. Let's trust our people. And we'll figure out later. And I think this principle is very, very enlightened. Interesting. And so if, if I'm a business, like, so what are the indicators that you think that uh, I should be looking out for and say, hey, I maybe uh, I can leap forward? Like, is there any sort of any, any signatures or any sort of conditions that, that you think that I should keep an eye on? Yeah. So so I think it's also, well, so, so senior leader or business manager or even individual entrepreneur, uh, one thing we have to ask uh, ourselves is what kind of world we're living in? Because a lot of the time, the, uh, the opportunity to lead productively depending on the shift of the environment. So a couple of things really jumped out these days, right? One is ubiquitous connectivity. That mm. people are connected in a way that a few years back is unimaginable. Not just people to people, obviously, but people to machine, machine, machine. So the way we innovate needs to be reconceptualized differently. For example, most managers would think that in order to innovate, we need to carry out research and development, R&D, and then we commercialize that. But what we've seen these days, of course, because we can essentially connect with one another through a platform, through open innovation, through tournament. The idea that you want to set up a platform and allows external people mm. to co-create product with you becomes more and more important. Is The classic example would be Apple iTunes, right? As smart as Steve Jobs, he could never predict on his iPhone the most important app is to call a cab. The second most important app is to take pictures, which disappear in seconds. That's Snapchat. No company and no single executive can think it through all that. What it required is this acknowledgement that the best we could do is to generate enough momentum to engage our community to co-create new products and features based on ubiquitous connectivity. So that's number one, I think. Second one is we kind of touch a little bit is around the, uh, the rise of smart machine. Um, mm. Because the computing power is so high these days and it's always go to exponential growth in terms of computing power because a microprocessor basically doubling its computing power every 18 to 24 months. So a lot of the routine job, no matter how complex it seems, getting automated. What that means is, as much as we can offload these mundane tasks and automate, you have to do that. Otherwise, your cost structure won't be even at par with your competition. And because your competition are automating as much as possible, and so the customer demand would begins to ramp up. 
So if you don't mm. automate, get squeezed in the middle. Then the third part we've got to figure out is now that the mundane getting automated, what would be the role of the uh, human manager? And I think that's great news. Mm. Essentially, every time we see a narrow job getting automated, usually a much more general job would come forth. Uh, require slightly different new skills, but much more enriching, usually based on empathy, based on human judgment, based on human network. So I'll give you a very concrete example here. Again, using the example of recruit holdings, what they discover is as they evolve their business model, the role of the sales manager continue to evolve as well. In the past, the sales manager is to go around town, selling advertising space, uh, getting order from this small medium-sized enterprise. As they pursue more and more of data analytics, they discover the sales, the role of the sales, a good sales, is to do customer observation, to understand what are the unarticulated needs of my customer, that the customer couldn't even conceptualize new product and solution. But because of our observation, we can conceptualize a new offering mm. and then wrap a prototype. So much so, that recruits salespeople go visit customer together with programmers. So they drag mm. the software programmers to visit customer, right? Which they don't want to. But once they see the customer, then they can really wrap a prototype of minimum viable product mm. with limited product features and putting on the customer side, seek early feedback before they scale. So the job of a salesperson essentially become a general problem solver. That requires empathy, creativity, social networking, and human relationship. I think that ultimately is the future of mm. the rise of the stock. So three things, if you ask me, where are the uh, areas that people mm. need to think about when trying to lead? Connectivity, smart machine, and rising importance of human creativity. Interesting, interesting. And I think um, another fascinating story that, that um, um, uh, I found in your book was uh, between this, this, this piano war between Steinway and, and Yamaha. Like, what do you think um, are the learning for business leaders about sort of reevaluating their strength that, that you could sort of um, share? Right. So the Yamaha versus Steinway in the form of a piano war, I think the biggest key takeaway is to uh, demystify a common excuse. Because mm. a lot of the manager, when they confronted with product commoditization or the changing landscape, they would think, well, let's move up high end. I'm going to mm. be the Rolex of my industry. Mm. I'm going to be the best. I'm going to build the best, the, the perfect machine for my industry so that I can continue to command a premium price. Now, Stanway and Sun makes the best piano in the world, no doubt. Mm. And you know, all the other movements mm. uh, they love Stanway so much so that they said no true Stanway sounds just the same. Mm. And it's all based on craftsmanship. It's almost like the Swiss watchmaking industry mm. that, you know, you go to Stanway and Sun Factory, you see the craftsman which manually mm. shape on the margin of a hammer to give this piano a unique personality. Now, despite the artistic achievement, we go and looking at the financial history, um, the company was actually gone through crisis after crisis. They, mm. they, they, they couldn't survive as an independent company. They sold off to a private equity group. And a few years later, when listed back in New York Stock Exchange, gone private again, sell to different organizations. 
from the peak, they were selling 8,000 piano, grand piano, to now it's only 2,000. At one mm -hmm. point, Stanway and Son had 400 acres of land in Astoria at the tip of Queens, outside Manhattan. Today, they would reduce to only one single factory complex uh, mm -hmm. at the tip of Astoria. They still make great piano. And, and the workers and the manager I've seen, they are so passionate about piano making. However, the company prosperity is simply over. And who destroyed them, right? Um, it turns out it's Yamaha. So Yamaha, mm. when it first came along, they don't make grand piano for concert hall. Mm. They make upright piano for small home in Japan. Now, as they grow and bigger and bigger, and after the Second World War, every Japanese household can buy a piano. They will buy one. Mm. And, 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 and by then, Yamaha becomes the world number one a piano maker in terms of volume. So around the uh, late 60s towards the 70s, then Yamaha decided to enter the last segment, uh, the concert grand piano. Now by then, if you pick two companies, Yamaha have a much bigger balance sheet. They have a lot more resources. They have a mm. huge global that they can market the product much stronger. Plus they have all this automated machine. They make piano by conveyor belt and so on. And it's very, very hard for Stanway to fight back. So in short, Stanway sort of get trapped in a golden cage, if you will. Mm. So it's a cautionary tale to remind us, yes, some company can retreat and become Rolex of the industry. But we have to think about the strategic consequences. Uh, and not a lot of companies actually are able to become Rolex after all. Interesting. And I think um, I was thinking about, so... It, you must be facing the same thing that in current when you talk, talk to a businesses, almost every business is going through disruption, right? So the technology that spine of my business, it's itself going through its own spine, it's on going through its own disruption. So it just makes the whole sort of um, landscape a, a lot more shakier than the businesses would like to see them into. So with, with that, um, uh, keeping that in mind, how would sort of you look at leap or their sort of uh, uh, sort of their affiliation with something like hey i should experiment more and be more innovative when even their core fundamental modules are sort of relying on things which are in itself going through its own s-curve disruption and there's a lot of shaky yeah. things going on what what's your thoughts on that yeah so so um in one of the example um that i use is uh, a tractor uh mm. john deere the reason that I explore John Deere is because, unlike automotive, a tractor and machine farming implement seems to be even less sexier than a BMW in automotive. So they should have faced that problem of product commoditization even more direct. And in tractor business, uh, in India, you have Mahindra, Mahindra, and all these low-cost competition are really disrupting um, the global business, right? So I was... So I, I go back to the archive and understand what's going on from the past mm. to the present. Mm. So historically, once upon in time in, in Ohio again, um, John Deere is a blacksmith that he mm. saw the mud, the soil in Midwest area is very different than New England. So he came up with the farming implement. The first mm. wave of disruption for John Deere is the internal combustion engine. It's Henry Ford and GM, built automotive. So there's a huge debate within John Deere. Should we outsource the internal combustion engine and drivetrain to Ford, or should we build it in-house? 
the company decided to build it in-house. Overnight, they become a tractor company, no longer just farming implement, plow, and so on. Now, today, if you're looking at John Deere, they don't just sell tractor, right? Because they have, for example, a platform called My John Deere that connect essentially farmers. They put on so much sensor on their tractor that they can tell the farmer what kind of soil composition, rainfall forecast, as a result, what kind of fertilizer you should use. It's all precision farming. On the other side of the platform, beyond just farmers, on the other side would be the chemical or the fertilizer manufacturer, like Dow Chemical, Monsanto or Sanjana. So essentially, they are playing the platform strategy, much like recruit holding, much like Google and Facebook. And this is where I begin to see, even when traditional companies such as John Deere is making tractor, there are ways that they could reinvent themselves and lead to a new knowledge discipline. Arguably today, is all around mm -hmm. data analytics that John Deere have embraced. And this is how you stay on top of the game and fan off and, and so that you can stay away from a uh, copycat before they catch you up. Interesting. Uh, and, and if, say, um, what are some of the trouble signs if I'm a business that, hey, I'm not going in the direction where I could exist? Like, what are some of the things that if I see probably I should, I should be concerned about? Right, right. So, so two things. Um, it is very, very important. Not just so we earlier we mentioned about product commoditization is one thing. Mm -hmm. The other part is we have to broaden. We have to broaden our, our 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 mindset beyond your product category. So the typical example, well, there there are people who describe the the reason that railway companies are gone off uh, all gone bankrupt at around the turn of the century because they thought themselves in the business of running train, not mm. in the not in, in the business of transportation. Now, same thing happening right now for automotive, right? People are no longer buying car as much as they were in the past. Um, among the millennial, uh, the percentage of applying for a driving license dropped to historical low. Um, and then you have EV, you have autonomous driving coming along and sharing economy is coming along. So for automotive companies such as BMW, Daimler, um, and, 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 and even Ford and, and GM, um, they are really in a situation they need to fundamentally rethink about what kind of business they're in. Because people are no longer thinking about your car, not even transport, but it's really mobility. So it's this idea that we have to, from time to time, think beyond your product category, but starting from the need of the consumer. In the end, if a consumer can hail a sharing car that drives itself autonomously based on EV, who needs a vehicle, right? Mm. So, so it, is, it is important to think beyond the product and services you're providing, but starting from the customer, what is the purpose for your company to exist? Interesting. So if, if, if I'm considering the portfolio of my company's products, right? So would you suggest me that a certain portion of that I sh considering leap mindset that certain portion of my business should be leap compliant and certain I can uh, I, I, I'm I, I can be lazy about not not going sort of very disruptive and futuristic. So what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, so it is important, right? Because this is a transition. And as we mm. see in recruit, leap doesn't happen overnight. So it mm. is typically 
So, so company must embrace an idea of a portfolio management in the sense that you allocate resources to do moonshot and persist on them. The last thing you want is to shut down those projects just because your whole business is, is subject to fluctuation. You earmark that budget and you stay that untouched. Uh, it don't, doesn't need to be big. It could be 5%, it could be 10%. It's up for the top management mm. earmark. But that management of a portfolio, having your core to continue to deliver so that you can plow back the resources into the next thing is absolutely critical. That's also the playbook of Amazon, right? They mm. keep on plow back, plow back to build on new capability. But perhaps because Amazon life cycle is so rapid, we tend to forget what is the, the underlying principle. But that principle of channeling resources from your mature business to the new it's not just Amazon, but essentially all companies need to take it really seriously. Interesting. And, and what are what are some of the hot areas um, in, in a business that you say are say leap compliant? That I should uh, I should say maybe I should start there first. Yeah. So what area is leap compliant? So 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 uh, if you could repeat the question one more time. Yes. So uh, in, in, in your business, right? So you said it's, it's, it's yeah. a transition uh, that, that we go through. So what are some of the areas that are um, that I should say are the hotbeds of I should start here first? Like, how do you identify yeah. those areas? Yeah. So 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 usually um, when I when I hear that question, I usually would advise um, executive to start with customer and work backwards. Hmm. Right. So it's almost like an Amazon principle. And, and so first is, rather than thinking about technologies per se, let's take the customer journey end to end and discover what are the pain points that our industry doesn't serve it. Uh, sometimes it's not the fault of your company, it's not even your partner. Mm. It's just the way the industry is architect currently that no one takes care of those needs. Now, those mm. tend to be the sweet spot. You can go for it. Then mm. you begin to try I to leverage on the three on the three areas that we just described. In order to solve that customer issue, could we leverage ubiquitous connectivity? Not mm. everything you need to invent by yourself. Mm. Could we leverage on smart machine? Are there stuff that are mundane that we should automate rather than do it manually? And all mm. of these really brings back to continue to understand customer need, require that creativity and 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 and, and empathy. So, so this is the way I usually would advise manager to think of start with customer, work backwards, and leverage on these two twin engines, smart machine as well as ubiquitous connectivity. Interesting. And now let's go up, um, a bit low level on this. So if I am a reader and I want to start doing something, say from today or tomorrow, uh, Besides grabbing this book and reading it and, and sort of trying to get into that, what would you suggest are some of the tactical steps that I could do? Yeah, so, so there are a couple of things. Um, I think one area for, so there are the long term and the short term. So short term wise, uh, it never, it's never too late or too much to visit customer, right? What you want to do is to looking at two types of target audience. One is heavy users, people who love your product so much, consume so much. We want to understand why. The second one is, of course, the non-user, people you couldn't quite crack and we want to observe rather than doing survey because you try to generate a lot of hypotheses. Mm. 
Then the, on parallel, what you want to do is to also draw an analogy from other industry as well. Um, you know, when Steve Jobs came up with the unibody laptop design that now is everywhere, he studied the car by his employee at the company garage because he thought the German car makers are so good at metalwork. In fact, this mm. is when he decided we should came up with a computer with no crack in between, no juncture point, it should be unibody. So usually that um, analogy from other industry it's very, very useful. And, and for a company to innovate, you cannot just be fast follower. You need to draw on lessons learned from other industries and selectively incorporate some of those elements. Um, so, so, so these two parts are in parallel. The third is, if companies are really serious about this, they need to create a space for manager to work on these projects across discipline, but in a co-working environment, right? So these days it's easier to do because there are many co-working space that you can rent for a couple of months and so on. But this idea that in order to solve an intractable problem, you need multiple disciplines, meaning the group probably need to work together from people whom they normally don't work. And to make that communication uh, uh, norm, to take off <laughs> co-location, we're still very social human beings. So if organizations are really serious about that, they need to think about how can we create this co-working space together. Could be rent, could be in-house, doesn't matter. Um, so, so and, and, and the last one would be, hmm. how do we measure success? Again, we spoke about it earlier, that the traditional KPI may not work, and usually doesn't work for new businesses. And so we've got to figure out a new uh, key performance indicator so that when you review business results, business progress, we can actually measure something that truly matters. Interesting. Uh, with that, um, you thank you so much for, for, for sort of um, discussing uh, Leap. Fascinating book, by the way. And I think I would definitely recommend it to our, our readers uh, and, and viewers because I think rarely we see a book which has a lot of examples. And, and again, I said, I do appreciate you walking in the past and getting some golden nuggets for us to capture and because I think there are a lot of playbooks that businesses are seeing the signature of now in, in, in their today scenario. So we have seen that in past. So why don't we sort of copy it over and see what we can learn from that. I think I think I do appreciate you walking through some of the interesting piece of nuggets. Now we are at the tail end of a conversation I and I want to spend a few minutes on you, like on, on your journey, if, if you don't mind. So if what are some of the things that um, are attributed to your success? Like what does if I say one two three elements that has really helped you personally stay successful and 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 relevant in this industry. What would you attribute those things to? Um, so I probably haven't done enough, but I should do more around this. Is to regain control of my own agenda, and I think this is a common problem for every one of us, right? Mm. Um, you and I and all manager basically are swarmed by email and text messages every day and. And then we lose control of our own agenda. The, the problem with losing control of our own agenda is we don't get blocks of time to concentrate on hard problem, concentrate on problem that are difficult to, sh- to, to solve. Quite frankly, mm. no one is going dis- to discover the next blockbuster to solve cancer by doing mm. multitasking email. You need concentration. Mm. So, so one thing I try to do more when 
I should do even more is you have blocks of uninterrupted time to mm-hmm. some people who call it deep work in order to do something truly creative. This is particularly important because in the age of smart machine, the last thing you want is to become a human router. That would be mm-hmm. the first thing to get automated. Um, so that's one, I think. Uh, second is, is uh, I, I hope I could again, is, is to read more books again. Uh, not just mm. in the business field, but just reading books from mm. other disciplines as well. Because what I find is geologists, for example, have a very different way of processing information. Mm. And biologists, again, uh, who study uh, bacteria, they have a very different way than computer scientists who see the world. And we don't need to get into too much technical details, but there mm. are books who are written for curious general public just to talk about of this interesting scientific discovery, just to getting into their world, I find it very helpful to reflecting on the kind of problem that I'm trying to wrestle with. So maybe read more and having more blocks of time and sleep enough, right? Interesting. I think that, uh, so that that is the best natural segue to our next question that I've seen in this stage of the conversation. So your book, I think from your reading archives, if you can share some of your interesting and favorite reads uh, or read, that would be fascinating. Well, uh, hmm. I, I like the book uh, Gun German Steel by Jared Diamond. Uh, hmm. I order a book by his. So in Gun German Steel, he tried to explain why some civilization uh, seems to be more powerful in, in a way that when two civilizations clash, one win and one lose. Mm-hmm. An explanation is not, is not genetics, definitely. Mm-hmm. It's not race, for sure. It is just because of historical happenstance of mm-hmm. geology. And it is a, a, an explanation that I, I find convincing, um, enlightening, as well as rooted in deep historical evidence as well. So I enjoyed that book. It's a Pulitzer Award winner as well. Um, the other author I quite like is uh, Steven Pinker uh, from mm. Harvard. So he is a prolific writer across many subjects. He's a mm. cognitive psychology, but he also is a linguist. So he mm. has books called Sense of Style to understand why some writing we humans associate as elegant. Mm. So, you know, the, 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 the novel writer would explain to us in certain form of writing is elegant. The grammatist would, would explain certain rules. And Stephen Pinker's take the form of, you know, cognitive psychologist. There are mm. certain parts of our brain why in certain way. This is why we perceive certain word and pattern pops up in certain way. We appreciate that. And so the latest book is about enlightenment now. And it's about mm. talking about the importance of uh, the enlightenment value, particularly the respect of science and curiosity and evidence and so and, and he made the argument that you know human progress to this point in fact is better and better because we tend to think the world is getting worse the golden era is in the past but he showed us a number of composite index from malnutrition rate uh, mortality child infancy and all of the disease and so on everything converge into a better outcome and so the idea is we are not falling off the cliff, but then we mm. treasure what we have achieved so far and, 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 and understand what causes that human progress. You made a strong case about scientific mindset, enlightenment value, 
have delivered so far. So let's treasure them and take our progress to the next level. And so I thought that's an interesting take of, of a big question, right? Uh, you may agree on that for sure, um, but but it's a very interesting way of seeing the world. So so these these, these are the kind of books I, I find it intriguing. Interesting. And, and the, thank you so much for sharing that. So uh, we are at the last but not the least of the conversation. So um, if you want the listeners and viewers to take away from something from this conversation, so what would that be? Like, what would be your parting thought uh, to our listeners and viewers? Yeah. Um, so, you know, these days, a lot of book writing on innovation have a feel like we're living in accelerated change. Disruption. Mm inevitable, disaster mm. is looming, and we have mm. no choice. What mm. my book try to do is to describe, yeah, the pursuit of a utopia position or sustainable competitive advantage is elusive. There's no such mm. thing, let's be honest. Whether you have a unique value proposition, like in the blue ocean, sooner or later it turns red, you get copied. But then it doesn't mean that a pioneering company can cannot prosper over a long period of time. You can, as mm. long as you learn one knowledge discipline to the next. And so it's a story of hope rooted by evidence and research. So if any parting hope I have is we are living in an accelerated world, it's scary, but mm. history has pointed us and showed us mm. that it is solvable as long as we embrace change, as long as we are willing to run experimentation, as long as we adhere some of the principles such as self-cannibalization and so on, the future is actually culpable. And we've seen it has been success and there's no way or no reason to be too dismissive about our ability to, 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 to thrive. I think that's, again, beautifully put you and, and, and thank you so, so much for being extremely generous with your time and being really candid on your, on your journey. And, Definitely, I would recommend this book to our listeners and viewers, and I'll put the link on the description, and uh, we'll tweet about the book as well. Um, so I would urge um, our listeners and followers to to try the book out, and and definitely give us a feedback of how do you like it, and we can have a conversation on on either the blog or uh, we'll we'll put out some some of the assets where where we can engage. With that, you thank you so much again uh, for your time, and you're always welcome on back on the podcast and. Wish you nothing but success with the book and thank you so much. Thank you so much. I look forward to continue our conversation. Thanks a lot for having me. Awesome. awesome. Uh, I thought I was sick of home, but actually I was homesick. Never really knew that I would have to grow up so quick. I'm so uncomfortable, don't know anybody here. Just a couple dudes that I met once, that's it. And I go into the booth feeling nervous. Got butterflies in my stomach like I'm so worthless. Is the mic gone? I don't know how to work this. Inside I'm breaking down, I hope I'm not up on this.